I'm going to read from two different books today. I'm going to read first from Curious for Hunger and then from Empty Hands, Open Arms. They are totally different books. One's a, a memoir of growing up with my father, who was a bank robber. The other one's about conservation in the Congo and bonobos. So it's <laughs> pretty wildly different subjects. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the drafts of Cures for Hunger was written in Morocco, actually. When I, this is a book that I worked on for 17 years. And um, I kept trying to find a way to tell this story. And I wrote first a draft in, uh, I wrote drafts all, pretty much in a dozen countries. But one of the major drafts, when I was 21, I went to live in Morocco for six months. And I ended up writing a draft of it there. And then the, one of the final drafts I ended up writing in Afghanistan, of all places. So it, it has a bit of a strange history. Um, and I finally figured out how to tell the story properly when I was working in Afghanistan. So I'm going to read from a, a short section about um, growing up with my father, what it was like to, to live with uh, my father. And just to give you some background, this was somebody whose the game he would play with myself and my brother was he would park us on a train track, and he'd turn the truck off, and we'd watch the train get closer and closer, and he'd pretend the truck wouldn't start. And he'd say to us, it's not starting, I don't know what's wrong with it. And we'd yell at him to give it gas and whatnot. And he'd finally get it going, and he'd pull off just before the train hit us. And his truck was really old, and it often stalled. So I always wondered, how does he know it's going to start this time? Um, but I loved that game. That was my favorite game. Um, <laughs> And then my father started turning into, my parents started, weren't getting along. I couldn't really figure out why my mother wasn't happy with him. But, you know, you can imagine uh, the train game, what didn't make her very happy either. <laughs> and as their relationship began falling apart, my father and I started having a conflict. And he, was the, he couldn't stand how much I read. It drove him crazy. This was a guy who'd never read a book in his life. He had a fifth grade education. He'd spent years in jail for bank robbery. Um, he just didn't understand why his son would, would want to read all day. And so I'm going to read to you a scene from right before my parents separate when I'm around eight years old. And he's taken me to work with him. He's selling Christmas trees. This, he's, he, he's not in, in serious crime anymore. He's selling Christmas trees at a lot in downtown Vancouver. And he's forgotten to feed me for a solid 12 hours. And I'm hungry. And he has the woman who was working for him order a pizza. And he's living in a little trailer. And he takes me inside the trailer and says he's going to set up the trailer. And um, one, one thing you need to know in this scene is, the two things you need to know. One is that I've been trying to get him to take me fishing because I'm angry at him. He was taking me fishing. He's no fun anymore. We don't park on train tracks anymore. He doesn't take me fishing. So I want, I'm trying to blackmail him to take me fishing because it's my birthday coming up. And we have a serious conflict around books. And he's trying to make me more manly and get me to like books. I mean, like, like things he likes. And I want to read books all day. Okay, so... He's forgotten about me, and um, he says to me, um, come on, what's well, on the outside in the Christmas tree lot? He says, come on, he said, I'll order you a pizza. I followed him back between the trees, and in the space before the trailer with the colored lights and chrome coffee maker, the music and the blue tarpaulin tied up above the door, he shouted to Helen and told her to order me a pizza. What kind does he want, she called through the slit in the sliding window. Whatever, he'll eat anything. He looked down and tried to smile, lines around his eyes. He hesitated and said, why don't we get your room set up? We went inside, down the narrow hall of fake wood paneling to a flimsy door. A mattress lay on the floor, an upside down plastic milk crate next to it, a lamp on top. He flicked the space heater on and its front began to glow red. 
The air smelled of burned dust. Is this okay? Yeah, I said. You can read in here. Helen will bring your pizza, then you can sleep. Okay, I told him, concentrating on keeping my voice steady and unbothered. He stared down, not looking into my eyes, just seeing, as if I were something he'd found on the roadside and he didn't know what to do. Then he forced a big smile. God damn it, he said with the exaggerated enthusiasm he used when he flashed money or bought employees beer. We should decorate your room, shouldn't we? He looked around and in the closet on a shelf found a battered magazine. He opened it and a long piece of paper with a picture of a woman folded out from the middle. Why is that page so long, I asked, and took an easy breath, feeling that he might be normal again, that we were about to do something fun, and that if I were patient, there'd be another chance to ask about going salmon fishing. It's called the centerfold, he said, and pulled the page free, the paper popping off the staples. There was a nail on the wall, and he pressed it through the top of the centerfold and stepped back. A dark-haired woman wore a long blue shirt. It was open in the front, and her nipples stared out from the white skin where she wore her bathing suit. There were shelves behind her with old, serious-looking books. Do you like it, he asked. Yeah, I said. Is she in a library? <laughs> he leaned close, furrowing his brow. I guess so. It's strange that she's in a library, isn't it? Well, I never thought about it. What books do you think she's reading? <laughs> One lay on the floor next to a blue sandal that had fallen off her foot. I don't know. Anyway, she can keep you company tonight. Can I take her home and put her up in my room? Ah, he lifted a hand and scratched his beard. I don't know if that's a good idea. I understood my mother wouldn't like it. This would definitely have to be a secret, too. So I hesitated, then asked, Do you think we can go salmon fishing for my birthday? He stared down. You don't give up, do you? It's because I really want to go. It's important. Okay, he said. Okay, we'll go salmon fishing. You promise? Yeah, I promise. Look, I have to get back to work. Helen will bring your pizza. After he'd left, I stared at the centerfold, wishing I had a library like the naked woman's. The books appeared expensive, with covers as thick as those on encyclopedias. But when I tried to make out the names on the spines, I couldn't read a single one. So my mother does look them. <coughs> Believe it or not, for reasons we can't explain, my mother decides to leave. And we go to Virginia. And I was a very obsessive child. I would, I would obsess about fishing. I'd obsess about books. I'd obsess about millions of different things. So I didn't see my father for five years, from the time I was 10 to until I was 15. But when I was almost 14, I found I, I bullied my mother into telling me he'd been a bank robber. I figured I knew something was up. And I finally got her to tell me he'd been a bank robber. And imagine you know, a 13, almost 14-year-old boy living in rural Virginia, dirt poor, nothing to do. And I had this mother who would say, you have a great future, you have a great destiny, you're meant to do great things in life. And I couldn't figure out what those would be in rural Virginia. And um, when she told me my father was a bank robber, it was the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> I thought, no more homework, no more chores. Yeah, he robbed, my father robbed banks. I don't have to do what anyone tells me to do now. And I decided I was going to be a bank robber and a writer, and travel the country writing books and robbing banks. Um, so this is the scene where I call my father and I'm going to tell him, I'm not allowed to call him from home, I have to, and he would send cards with his phone number in them. So I call him and I tell him I know he's a bank robber. Another card had arrived. It bore glittery words thinking about you. Inside was his, was his number, nothing else. 
As if in a movie about prison, I felt like an inmate who receives a gift in which the means of escape are hidden. I left the house and went down the highway to the 7-Eleven. A storm was blowing in, the sky dark and the power lines swaying. Trucks slowed and chugged into turns where the highways intersected. And after I dialed collect, his voice came thinly onto the line. We hadn't spoken in months. He sounded different, reserved and unsure of himself, nothing like what I'd imagined since my mother had confessed his crimes to us. He asked how I was, and I told him, I'm okay, I'm just sick of school. Oh, he said. He asked how my brother and sister were, and I said, okay. I talked a bit about rebuilding an old motorcycle I'd found in the barn where my mother kept her horses and a leather jacket I wanted. But then I ran out of things to say, and we were so silent, and we were silent for so long that I knew I had to tell him that I had to share the only thing I could think about. Bonnie told me. She told you what? About, I said, about your crimes. He didn't speak. Clouds were moving in, drawing evening with them. What did she tell you? She didn't say much. I was the one who asked. I guess I already knew. You already knew what? That you'd been to jail? I was proud of you. She said you robbed banks. Again, the long silence. Wind blew through the dust of the parking lot, knocking a crushed styrofoam cup against the brick wall. She said that, he asked softly. I want to know about what you did. What I did? I want to know everything. It's amazing. No one else has a father like you. He was breathing into the receiver. What do you want to know? About the banks. Did you only rob banks? No. What else did you rob? I, he sighed, lots of things. Like what? You want to know about this? You're proud? It's amazing. I think it's amazing. I'd been almost panting. My heart beat too fast. I sensed how much of a stranger he was. Four years had gone by, and I'd imagined him as he was before, living in the same house, driving the same car. But from the way he spoke, the care with which he chose his words, I knew he'd changed. I robbed banks, he said. It's true. I robbed a lot of banks and jewelry stores. How many? Maybe, I don't know, maybe 50 banks? Armed robbery wasn't a big deal. It was easy. I only did one bank burglary. That's different. What do you mean? Burglary is when you go in at night and take everything. You go into the vault. Robbery is with a gun. Anyone can do that, but burglary takes brains. The image of him with a gun, robbing a bank as if it were nothing, impressed me. But burglary didn't interest me at all. What about the jewelry stores? Lots of them, he said, as if to please me. I unloaded what I got with the mob. The mob? It's not that big of a deal. It's pretty common. I probably robbed, I don't know, 50 jewelry stores too. It was like a job. His voice became hoarse and he coughed. I asked how bank robbery worked and he told me about surveillance, knowing what time the armored truck came on payday. That's when the tellers had more money. He hesitated, clearing his throat, and said, anyway. I could hardly breathe, hardly think of what to ask next. I had so many questions. I wanted him to speak, but he grew silent. Then the words came out of my mouth. Have you ever killed anyone? Rain had begun to fall, striking up the parking lot dust. The sky flat and low and gray, the wind strong. No, he said finally, his voice so hoarse he was almost whispering. Listen, Denis, I got out of crime because of you guys. I wanted a family. I didn't want to go back to jail and not see my children. That's why I stopped. But it's amazing. I think it's amazing. No one else has a father like you. The downpour began in force, gusting under the overhang, soaking me where I huddled at the phone. Lightning flared beyond the highway, illuminating the clustered rooftops of a subdivision. Thunder shook the ground and the line went dead. I hung up and pulled my jean jacket over my head and ran home.
book switch. <laughs> so uh, I dragged this book all over the planet for you know 17 years trying to finish it, and it was a bit of a personal mission, and there's a lot to say about that. But when it was done, I was very happy to move on to other subjects, and um, as you can imagine, 17 years is a long time. And I wrote my first book, Vandalove, in the middle of those 17 years. It kind of grew from the memoir, actually. Um, but I decided, my father at the end of his life would often say to me, I feel as if I wasted my life, as if I contributed nothing to society. And during the years I've been reading it, writing it, I've been reading a lot of books on the environment and on conservation. And I was really amazed that almost all writing on the environment had one thing in common. It really made you want to slash your wrists. You pretty much read environmental writing and you thought, I'm going to buy a huge truck and use up all the gas myself. Just get this over with. And so I thought there must, on the off chance that the human race is going to survive, just on the off chance that we're not going to all die within a few years, like everyone says, how about we look at some stories that could offer us some positive solutions? So I started looking for conservation stories. And I'm only going to read a very small section from this. Um, but before I read it, um, I was originally looking for just good conservation stories around the rainforest, and I heard about a group for about 3% of the budget, the budget of all the big NGOs in the Congo had made three times as much protected area. And I knew what bonobos were, but I didn't really know what bonobos were. I, I didn't really fully understand. So I started looking into bonobos and researching them, and I met a bunch of bonobos, and I started thinking, all right, the human race took the wrong path somewhere. Okay, we need to learn from the bonobos. And that might sound innocent or naive, but um, what we're studying bonobos, you know, the, here we have a great ape that's matriarchal that's in 40 years has never been witnessed killing, although plenty of writers love to hypothesize about them killing, or zoos like to get really upset when female bonobos beat up male bonobos, um, but chimpanzees can rip each other's arms off and that's fine. Um, our own gender issues are projected right into our studies of great apes. It's fascinating the degree to which we have this problem. And I've been, in looking at bonobos and the way they evolved, what surprised me was how quickly evolution happens, how quickly um, a shift in culture, and bonobos have culture, allows the biological organism to become different. And that was what most amazed me, and we can talk about that more later. Um, I'm going to read a section on human culture and bonobo culture. Did all of you know what bonobos were before you came here today? No? Yes? Honest? Be honest. If you knew, raise your hand. All right. Okay. So let me just say this. There are four great apes. There are orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, and chimpanzees. Orangutans broke off from the lineage that leads to us, if we want to make it human-centric. Um, broke off from that lineage the first. The gorillas broke off second. And then chimpanzees, the common ancestor of chimpanzees and, and bonobos broke off um, a few million years before we came along, eight million years approximately. And um, they share 98.7% of our DNA, both do. Chimpanzees, all males dominate all females, um, whereas, and they wage war. Um, if one male is taken from one group and put into another group, he'll be torn limb from limb. They're highly intelligent. They have, share our, a lot of our emotions. However, bonobos are matriarchal. All females, if any male attacks any female, all females gang up on him and drive him off and beat him up. But they don't, they've never been witnessed murdering. They don't commit infanticide. Um, so they're a fascinating creature. They've proven to have, it's debated, but they've been proven to have, in my opinion, linguistic ability. Um, and they share a great deal of our DNA. So the question is, how can two creatures that share the same amount of our DNA, who are so close together, like chimpanzees and bonobos, be 
so totally different, and what can we learn from bonobos? So I'm going to read you just a short section, and then we'll go to the discussion. That female and male bonobos have varying ranks, and that both can initiate sexual interaction, resembles, resembles our conception of an enlightened society more closely than does the near dominance of every male over every female among chimpanzees. Male chimpanzees battle for the alpha position, and male bonobos do not, nor do they gang up on females. Rangham and Peterson describe bonobos as chimpanzees with a threefold path to peace. They have reduced the level of violence in relations between the sexes, in relations among males, and in relations between communities. As a note, when communities meet, they have orgies instead of killing each other. They find solutions for everything. Uh, even recent brain studies of chimps and bonobos confirm that their respective cerebral structures correspond to their observed behavior. Bonobos have higher levels of anxiety, are more risk-averse, and have increased restraint. And yet, can the motivation for their behavior be reduced to instinct and biology? Or is it possible that cultures and social relations vary among bonobo groups in ways more closely resembling humans? Takayoshi Kano, the first person to study bonobos in the wild, writes that bonobos are rich in individuality and the personality of individuals probably exerts a strong influence on the character of social relationships between group members. He goes on to explain that field studies at Wamba reveal different group personalities that are likely to be rooted in the way various particular individual personalities compose them. It is, of course, the distinct character, not just of bonobo groups, but of all apes that makes them such rich subjects for research. For instance, apes communicate often with gestures whose meaning varies dramatically between groups within each species. The flexible nature of this symbolic communication gives us a glimpse into how language might have emerged. The challenges facing great ape conservation lie not in their culture or behavior, but in ours, in our inability to empathize, our refusal to accord them sentiency. We often fail to see the subtle line of influence, the way animals and humans are constantly shaping each other's culture. We have a long history of integrating them into ours. We have domesticated them for food and work and created complex societies around herding or horsemanship. If we killed lions and wolves and made them into symbols, it was because they were both our predators and competitors in the hunt and human respect for them was adaptive, since those who lacked it often got killed and didn't reproduce. Likewise, humans are still adapting, creating symbols with flagship species to protect the natural resources necessary for our survival. In this way, conservation has promoted the growth of coalitions between Cong Congolese and Americans, as well as between organizations and governments. But the way humans use symbols is not simple. We know the transformative power of an icon, <clears throat> how it can serve as a reminder of a quality that humans possess. By aligning ourselves with it, we find our behavior subtly changed, our consciousness shifting away from a categorical identification with chimpanzee behavior. We have found aspects of our society that we increasingly value represented in a non-human species. Equality between the sexes, group cohesion, the lack of war. Like bonobos, we enjoy non-procreative sex and we form social bonds more easily than do chimps who wage war when intruders come into their territory. We can travel into distant rainforests and discuss the preservation of resources and species and speak, as BCI does, of a family model for their organization. We do not BCI, the group I was writing about, Bonobo Conservation Initiative. We do not have to be naive about bonobos to see them as a symbol, and to diminish the value of this symbol does not serve us well, either when we are using it to protect the few remaining rainforests or the creature itself. During my stay in Cocolo Puri, it's the reserve, I repeatedly saw that the symbol of the bonobo does draw people together. When villagers dance and praise the work done for bonobos, when school children learn the ancient folk tales, or when traditional singers, funded by BCI, 
travel from village to village performing songs about bonobos. The result is as palpable as that of Westerners hearing biblical parables that encourage virtue. In Apes' Language in the Human Mind, Sue Savage Rumbaugh and her co-authors Stuart Shanker and Talbot Taylor remind us of our illusions of superiority and its risks. They address language as the long-held bastion of humanity and examine it in a way that the Congolese villagers who greet us repeatedly with song might understand well. Language is a funny thing. It permits us to think that we know things that indeed we do not know. It permits us to talk about things rather than to do them, and to think we have actually done something by, by talking rather than by acting. It permits us to think that by talking in unison we can come to act in unison, forgetting that the more feeble the link between word and deed, the less likely words are to alter deeds. Should we wish to act in unison, it is far better that, better that we sing than that we speak. Language is a funny thing. It permits us to think that other species are not able to communicate the purposes or intentions of their actions to one another, nor to coordinate their behaviors, nor to plan their actions. It permits us to think this because it permits us to avoid hearing the kind of talking that other species are doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. So actually, I'm going to jump like the first question actually I would like to, to, to start with is um, actually on the point of language. Uh, it's really hard not to, to see that um, language and issues of language have been sort of almost like a, uh, an obsession uh, in, your, in some of your writings, yeah. especially in Vandal Love and in Cures for Hunger. Um, and here by, by, by language, especially it's the issue of this sort of present absent language of the father, yeah. French language. Um, so I would like to see if you, if you could actually tell us a little bit more about that, about that, that this issue of language, especially how on many levels it's kind of that chasing that language that kind of structures some of the narratives, especially of those two books. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, sounds all right. I think what, what most fascinated, you know, I grew up with a father who spoke French, but hated Quebec, was ashamed of Quebec, said don't ever go back there, it's a horrible place, everyone's poor. It was a colonial society at that time where the church was a theocracy. It's, it's strict today, if we might, we could compare the theocracy in 1930s, 1940s Quebec to the theocracy in Iran today. It's, it's at that level of control um, and that level of repression. And he hated it and rejected it and he didn't want us to speak French. And my mother insisted that we go to French school and so I learned French. But what, what surprised me, what I learned was, you know, you grew up with this French name in America and it's first in English Canada where you're identified by your name, more than in America. America is such a mix of names, there's more freedom, but in English Canada, I will always be a French Canadian no matter what I do. It's, 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 it's that simple. Um, you have the name, but what I began to realize is sort of the dehumanizing power of language, that this boundary that if people can't master the language into which they're entering, they never become fully human in the eyes of the people mm -hmm. they're around, and they have to then exert, use force or violence to, 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 to almost create a self, to force people to recognize that self. They have to find other means to make that self recognize, whether it's through material possessions or clothes or something. And I was sort of fascinated by that process of my father wanting so badly to be an English speaker. He wanted so badly, and he sort of violently cut his way across America trying to become English through money, through cars, through hot girlfriends, all these things that, you know, in his mind were right, going to yeah. 
give, make him English, um, that was how he saw it. You know, if I have a beautiful woman and a lot of money, I'll be, but that's, you know, yeah. I'll, well, his image of wealth was tourists, you know, and they, the tourists had one child, tourist woman had one child, and they were well off, and they were English speaking, and in his, you know, at that time, everyone had 19 children. So when I was writing, I was sort of amazed by the power of language. And when I wrote Vandal Love, the characters, the first character has no language almost. He's thrust into this world where he's just a body. And as an immigrant, he's valued only for his body. Yeah. And um, so the theme of my first novel is very much what it's like to sort of exist on a level of just the body and how you become a monster when you have no access to tell your own story and when you're excluded from the narrative of the dominant culture. And when I wrote um, Cures for Hunger, uh, not Cures for Hunger, Empty Hands Open Arms, and I wrote, when I went to the Congo, I would sit all day with Congolese conservationists and villagers and just say, tell me your story. And I would just record their stories and day after day, sometimes eight hours at a time, listening to people's stories. And so I tried to make a large section of the book their stories as closely as I could to, to my ability. Yeah. And um, what surprised me is I would have readers come up to me and say, even these African conservationists, this is fascinating. I didn't know Africans fall in love with nature the way we do. <laughs> you know, things on that level where, and, and what a lot of what the book is about is, in a sense, you can't do conservation or aid work or humanitarian work successfully when you're dehumanizing your subject. Right. And that is what we do all over the world. Con it's a human rights issue, actually, to even do conservation. So the book was trying to show these people's vision of it, and I was trying to get beyond that language barrier to tell. So language does is, is a theme through all the books, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think you do a really fantastic job, actually. And I think we'll, if we can, we'll talk a little bit more about the interweaving of personal histories, but also the histories of the, of the, of the Congo and Zaire. Uh, along with biological history and geological history, which I found really absolutely fascinating in the book, to actually bring all those histories together uh, to tell this, you know, this really rounded up uh, story of of the conservation, what the work that they're, they're doing, but also what is at stake right. um, yeah. and on a daily basis and through the voices of those people. And that's, I think, one of the really wonderful things about the book is actually the voices of you know of albert etc et all those you know people working there actually come through um along with your voices and those are the moments actually where i kind of almost felt like characters from you know the character a character from vandalov or from cures for hunger kind of wanders into yeah. into into this into this other book and a kind of try is is sort of looking I'm um, looking through his eyes um, at what what's going on what's going around um, to go back to the to the issue of language I think uh, you know sort of reading a little bit of, uh, about about you um, and about your name also I found it interesting that uh, it was so important for for your mother that the French stays there in your name so the s was removed yeah. right yeah, uh, so that people are forced to pronounce it correctly yeah. um so i found that you know uh, quite quite actually quite interesting um, i have a s little section that i'm actually that I found in um la langue de mon père okay yeah um in the it's a short story yeah uh, i think it's one of the earlier yeah, uh, yeah. texts but yeah. that you wrote um and uh, I'm going to read just a segment here, a short segment in French. Parfois, quand j'écris et qu'une phrase me vient, inspirée des rythmes dont les origines me sont perdues, il me semble que c'est la langue française qui a toujours été héroïque, qui a su 
préserver le passé que mon père a voulu effacer et qui a survécu en dépit de lui à travers lui. Uh, to, to sort of to, to trans, uh, many people speak French? Okay, we'll, I'll try to, to translate it uh, into English. Please correct me if I mess it up, which I probably will. Um, Sometimes when I write uh, and when a phrase or a sentence uh, comes to me and it's inspired by rhythms, the origins of which are lost to me, uh, it seems to me that it is the French language that, is, that has always been heroic and that has always preserved the past that my father had wanted to erase. And this past that had survived despite the father and through him. Yeah. Is okay? Yeah, that sounds okay. Right. <laughs> That's actually the only piece I've written directly in French that I published. So that story was written directly in French. So, 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 so French is clearly more than, you know, that sort of a, um, a trigger, so to speak, for, for, for narratives. I mean, it is really um, almost this substructure that goes under a lot of, a lot of the, the writing, almost this unspoken, um, erased kind of past, um, yeah, and I, I find this extremely interesting because uh, one of the things that, that that I found I got quite a bit of help sort of uh, formalizing and talking about through graduate school in the U.S. was actually how to look at the complexity of the linguistic situation in Morocco mm -hmm. and actually be able to talk about it how to pick up a novel that is written in French right. by a Moroccan writer whose first language is Tamazight, um, that at the time was uh, completely outside uh, all institutions right. and pretty much prosecuted. But you look, you read through the French text and you, what you see is actually this language manifesting itself through actually through the writing. And the, the writer that I'm um, thinking about specifically is Mohamed Khair al -Din. Yeah. Um, if, if, uh, yeah, if, yeah. Especially in Le Déterreur, for example, or Agadir, which yeah. he invented yeah. his concept of uh, seismic writing, where he basically wanted to make the French feel alienated when they read this text right. uh, because the structure is completely um, uh, it's sort of permeated by the narrative that that has its origins in oral stories in yeah. in, in Morocco um, so maybe to um, to to jump from that a little bit yeah. to uh, to uh, to the to uh, open arms um, the you, you talked a little bit about the sort of the genesis of the, the decision to, right. to start the project, that you had this hunger to, to figure out, to understand how this, uh, this work is being done, and also maybe find some glimpses of hope in what's going on uh, in the world. Um, I want, to, want you to talk a little bit about how, how the decision to structure the book, how did you go about thinking about that? That was, that was very challenging. Um, there was so much information. First of all, what I wanted to do was subtly get the reader into the world and make the reader fully experience it. So I thought, I'll start with the travel log, and I'll walk the reader through the experience. This is what it looks like. This is what the country looks like. This is how um, 
what it, you know, just what it's like to be there. Right. And then I start to build the landscape, start to try to build all the pieces. And when I felt I had the reader fully in the landscape, in the heart of the country, that I'd carried the reader to the middle of the country, then I started to tell the stories from the African point of view. Because I felt as if I had situated the reader enough that it wouldn't be a shock to then transition into, right. into that, 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 that history. There'd be enough of a placement. So I tried to, to, to just really integrate the reader into the world and then kind of drop them off in the most remote place on the African continent probably and then pick up from there with the, with the African characters. That was sort of my goal. The, the other question about the structure that I also had was is that you seem to move, I mean, you seem to almost like time yourself to perfection in terms of the length of the background that you give about specific issues. Um, and I'm wondering when you were writing, did you have, because you, you would start talking, for example, about the, the, you know, the history of the Congo and the history of Zaire, etc. And then you, almost like at a time when you kind of, you, you've had enough of reading about that, you move, you interchange, like change it to, uh, to Albert speaking, for example. Um, so were there, are there a lot of bits that have been chopped out? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. For, you know for material that was going I mean, to go into Because I tell the... I tell the entire evolution of the rainforest, pretty yes, much. You and do. there's a point where I go, okay, I have to fit in 60 million years of history. Yeah. And where can I fit in 60 million yeah. years of history? And how long can I hold the reader? So I would write, I, I wrote those versions, those yeah. sections hundreds yeah. of times. I would rewrite them and rewrite them and try to get the rhythm right so that it felt relevant to the place and the moment. And then I yeah. would switch back. And it, it, I think that's largely just from reading it over and over again and just hearing the pacing, hearing the voice. And okay, does it, there's that moment where it starts to feel like we've gone down a rabbit hole and we're not going to come back. And yeah. I, try to, to, I try to take it to that moment where you feel as if whatever piece of history I'm giving is a trope for the, the experience that the characters are living, whether myself or the other characters, so that you know that you've been given enough to really understand almost the, historic, the, the force of history about pushing them. And that was what really struck me when I was there, was the degree to which... Africans are so much more affected by history than we are. We are so incredibly insulated. You know, we make, whether it's um, a, a, a free trade agreement or whether it's, you know, we allow a certain, you know, a certain kind, we do a certain kind of farming technique that we integrate, whatever, you dramatically see every economic decision and relationship, you know, the World Bank makes and whoever makes affecting everyone's lives. and. What struck me was how every person I met had been thrown all over the place by the, the, these changes. It wasn't as if, you know, maybe their investment account got diminished and was right. going to take 10 years to come back. They were literally, you know, people would say to me, oh, yeah, well, there was no more money left and the government fell. And these are educated, university educated people with, with vision and dreams. And they say, I got stuck in this place in the rainforest for two years, three years, and I yeah. planted cassava and I fished. And I, you know, did my best to survive for three years in the rainforest. And then when things stabilized, I went to the next place, you yeah. know. And you have to think, can you imagine being on a trip to visit your uncle somewhere and the country falls apart and you have to plant a garden and fish to live for three years while you wait for the country to start working again. That was what everybody had repeatedly experienced. Yeah. And the, sort of the respect I had for them was, was, was profound after listening to them speak. And I think one, one of those um, uh, voices actually that came really 
well and extremely was extremely eloquent in actually sort of bringing the history of Africa really together and the, the history of the environment in the, in the region together um, was actually Albert Lotana. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, like, I mean, that was just his, his whole life's journey was actually a really impressive piece of writing. So uh, I, I don't think we have you know, time to talk about you know, all of that bit, but there was one um, concept or one element in his life story that I think was quite quite that stood out, and that whole that whole idea of the évolué, right? Um, yeah. That in a way, um, you know, said you that Africans, you know, maybe um, are impacted by history more. That's a really good example of yeah. that because here is the concept of évolué as it was put forward by the Belgian, yeah. uh, uh, you know, um, occupant at the time, um, and that that label basically. Shaped his life. So and just to explain, life of his if family. you explain yeah. to people, the Belgians when they came in to the Congo, they created a class of people called les évolués, the evolved people. And les évolués were were Africans who lived like white people, married one person, went to church, used a fork and knife, um, did everything like white people. And when you got recognized for being sufficiently evolved, white people would start inviting you to white places, and you were there were an intermediary class. But when independence hit everybody wanted to kill the, 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 les évolués. So they went from being the people who were struggling to kind of be intermediaries, to lead the other Congolese and get good agreements with the Belgians to being the targets of a popular uprising. Yeah. Uh, so, so did you notice, I mean, you know, when you, across, when you, when you traveled um, other countries, uh, did you notice other examples, I mean, like that one? I mean, uh, the French used the notion as well, so the French colonies also had it. The thing with the Belgians, the, the real, you know, Belgian colonies are the worst colonies in Africa, uh, as far as I can tell, not having been everywhere yet, but largely because Belgium was not a cult, in my opinion, not a culture that was, that had, it wasn't self-confident, it didn't have, you know, the French would still do horrible things, but they would bring in universities and they would try to get people educated. And there was a, a class of Africans moving between France and Africa who really benefited from French education, whereas the Belgians were much more almost like Nazi Germans a little bit in the way they, they, they you know, they, in Rwanda they would give identity cards. So, um, you know, before that, the Tutsis and the Hutus can move, you know, you can become a Tutsi if you were sufficiently wealthy and you had enough yeah. cattle. The Belgians gave everyone identity cards. This is your race. This is what you are. And they cut all mobility, and they froze the dynamism that had been there for hundreds of years. So, and and they didn't bring in anything. They destroyed culture without bringing in anything to nourish yeah. it through its change. So I think that um, Bel the Belgian colonies were particularly bad. especially under King Leopold. Yeah, under King right. Leopold. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who don't have context, the Congo, you know, King Leopold's people. He basically promoted himself saying that he was educating the Africans and he, his people were enslaving entire populations, using them to harvest ivory and rubber. And if you didn't harvest enough, they would cut off your right hand. And the soldiers who worked in the Belgian Congo, every time they shot someone, they had to cut off the right hand to explain why they used a bullet. But they would then go hunting for fun, or they'd miss somebody and have to shoot twice, so they'd go into villages and they'd harvest all the right hands and bring them back to say, well, we used 52 bullets here, 52 right hands. Um, they, 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 
the, the Congo lost an estimated 10 million people during 20 years of Belgian rule. So it was an absolute massacre that traumatized the culture. And then you had the Belgian government take over. It was basically a fiefdom. And the Belgian government took over afterwards. It improved significantly, but it was still very colonial um, in, its, in, in a lot of its practices. And then when Mobutu took power the United, during the Cold War, Mobutu, the United States supported a dictator who basically enriched himself um, and we supported him for 30 years to keep the Soviets out and the entire country disintegrated. The infrastructure fell apart to such a degree that to get anywhere in the country was virtually impossible. It was, yeah. you were trapped wherever you were. And I appreciated the uh, literary references that you had there. Uh, for example, what Mark Twain wrote about oh, right. uh, King Leopold in his soliloquy uh, about Leopold. Um, the, um, the, another question that I wanted to, uh, to ask you, and then maybe we can open up the, the floor for, for, uh, for other questions, is, and this we will move a little bit, we'll move to uh, Cures for Hunger. Um, there, were, there, were, there are two moments that I'm very curious to kind of hear you talk a little bit about. One of them, and there, for me, they mark huge transitions in the narrative. Um, one is the scene with the, uh, um, there was, uh, with Stein, uh, referring to Steinbeck, John Steinbeck. All right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. John Steinbeck, and the poem that followed. Right. Uh, that's one. And the other one is with the, um, when you're sort of tasked to show that you can do something bad. Right. Uh, and you're asked to go with a baseball bat uh, and retrieve the $50 yeah. from the... The, the pregnant the, 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 teenager. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, so I wanted to, wanted to talk a little bit about those yeah. moments because it seemed like they're extremely important in the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so um, just generally speaking, um, in Cures for Hunger, when I discovered John Steinbeck, uh, you know, when I began reading his work, it sort of was a permission. So, like, you know, I think what fascinated me when I was young was my father, I grew up with a father who told stories about crossing the continent repeatedly, traveling all over the place, and there was still that conquest of, you know, even in Quebec today, there's still stories that are, it's more remnant in Quebec than it is in the United States, of leaving home and crossing the continent and finding your place. And you can kind of hear that old North American voice of go out there and take a risk and discover something. And so I was raised hearing those stories. When I read John Steinbeck, I immediately recognized, you know, here's what I can do for a living. I can be a drifter. You know, this, is, this works fine for me. I'll be a drifter. I didn't know, there, I didn't know there was, that was a career option. Um, and so John Steinbeck kind of gave me permission. And you know, I, was, I was 13 and reading all of Steinbeck, completely obsessed and wanting to do nothing but cross the country and so, almost die as often as possible. So is that, is that one of those moments that you mean when you say that writing saved your life? Yeah, I would say, you know, I say that because, you know, the, my one thing I should say is my first, uh, my memoir is very, much, uh, is very much about how I grew up wanting to be a writer. My father would tell me these insane stories and I loved them and then I would read novels and find a continuation of those stories. But when my father would say to me, this is what you should do in life, I would have read 100 or 200 or 300 novels, and I would think, nope, uh, those novels told me 100 other possibilities. I could do all these other things. I, you know, and so I was so much more educated than he was about the world through novels. And 
they gave me the tools to sort of choose a different future. So I wrote the book very much like a novel, because I imagined myself in a novel. I pictured myself as the character in a novel, sort of on this quest, on this journey to find freedom ultimately. And the irony is my father was one who kind of wanted to cut off that freedom at a certain point, and yet he'd given me this passion for it and made me want to... Uh, maybe, anyway, so I, 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 I describe the book as being, you know, as, as say that book, books saved me because they very much gave me the tools to sort of see beyond, you know, the next hill. I could kind of go, okay, this is what the world around me is telling me is possible. My father wants me to, you know, be a small-time crook and collect money with a baseball bat and you know so he, he gives me a baseball bat and sends me to get some money and the girl who answers the door is probably 18 and she's pregnant and you know I don't get the money by the way don't, I'm not a horrible person <laughs> I didn't get the money but um, but there was those moments where I could sort of reject him and books gave me the tool to sort of I sort of was able to elevate one thing and give it enough importance in life when I got to university I, I probably I must have seemed like you know someone from another century all I wanted to do was read I would spend all my all day in the, all day in the library. Literally, it's sleep in the library, just read for days on end. And I was sort of I'd made books such a symbol of survival and what I wanted and success and change and being someone different that I translated my entire world through them. And, you know, it took me uh, many years to become relatively normal. And I have to say that that's one of actually one of the things that um, to me on a very extremely personal level appealed to me about 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 the book. Uh, because I mean, and the the Steinbeck reference was very uncanny. Because uh, for me, actually, when I was growing up, um, the, we talked about you know the French colonialism. One of the few good things that I think the French did, you know, in Morocco, so to speak, was actually they left a wonderful library in this yeah. town that would not otherwise have a library, and we had the whole collection of Steinbeck's book beautifully uh, you know, bound in, le in red leather, for, in, in Moroccan leather, um, and they were all translated from English into French. Right. So I devoured those you know, in, in high school, and those, that was basically the outlet that there was at the time. There was nothing else yeah. to do. So, so when, you, when you talk about how you know, reading and books, you know, in a way, give you, um, saved your life, so to speak, I just, that was, this is a great way to actually connect to the book. I think that, you know, information has changed so much and the way knowledge is shared has changed so much that there's not that much of a memory of the power of books to absolutely transform a life. You know, if you're living in the middle of nowhere and your, your, your father's, you know, a criminal or whatever, and you, just, you do latch on to books, you can actually gain all the knowledge you need to get out of that situation and change. And I think that, you know, it's, it's such a metaphor in colonial literature, you know, when you read, uh, or post-colonial literature, when you read about that period of these young men in small towns, whether it's, you know, any continent pretty much, discovering a book and suddenly being in Paris while they're sitting in the middle of Africa or South America or somewhere, and then going, wait a minute, what else is possible? You know, right, and that's, absolutely. That's and that's that's what what the Belgians did not give the Congolese. Oh <laughs> you know. I think we should open the yeah, floor for other questions. questions. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I have a question about another book that uh, I was looking at the interview you had with Carol on that review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a young guy making good, but it all does not work out. 
So I was really interested in like, because you know, I thought of all the Faulkner that you could have thought right. about. Why would Absalom Absalom? I mean, Absalom Absalom was basically my Bible. For, I mean, it's real. I mean, I understand. For, you know, like, for, I'm interested in, like, why it was for many life. years. Um, for a number of reasons. I think for the way voices were layered for the layering of voices, for the way... It's one of those books that when I feel like I need to get my head in a more inventive place, if I go back and read just the constant inventiveness, um, the... But I also think that the main character, you know, just Thomas Sutpin, and the way he... His past is conjecture. It's, you know, the characters are always trying to, to sort of tie down his past. And he's somebody who wants to reinvent himself to the models of a society that is already dying. And so even as he's trying to create the perfect emblem of that society, the society's disintegrating around him. So you have this guy who comes in this small town in Jefferson, in, uh, in Yaknapatapa County in Mississippi, and he creates this massive plantation house, and it's going to be the great plantation owner. But the Civil War is about to arrive, about to happen, and the, after the Civil War, the entire aristocracy, the entire social structure of the South collapses, and he's caught trying to find a successful social structure that ultimately destroys his entire family. And I think for personal reasons, it fascinated me just because I was raised with a father who did something similar, who essentially tried to make himself into the perfect English-speaking Canadian, you know, tried to, to, tried to refabricate himself and tried to find every way to get there that was so destructive. Because in a sense, to have the power to recreate yourself sufficiently, you have to have an incredible gift for destruction, too. And that was what is fascinating about Sutpin, is he's capable to destroy everything in order to create something phenomenal, but with his nature is so destructive at the same time to create that. And that was the world out in which I was raised to some degree. And it fascinated me to see it written into history. And when I read these, when I read Faulkner, Faulkner was when I read, when I read Faulkner, that woke me up. I remember going, you're allowed to do this? <laughs> no one told me I was allowed to do this. And I kept thinking, you know, wait a minute, what could I do with literature now? Um, and he tied all the characters back into history. So even when I wrote Cures for Hunger, I wrote it very much from a child's point of view, knowing his father, but it's very much inspired by Faulkner in the sense that it, I try to unravel him as the story goes. I try to tie him back into history. My father hadn't seen his family in 30 years when he died, so I knew nothing about him. I didn't know his real name until right before he died. And, I, and trying to tie him back into history, you know, when you put him back into French-Canadian history, he makes sense. He starts making a lot of sense. Otherwise, he's just this crazy outlaw, you know? And I wanted to, 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 to try to put him back into history, and Faulkner was able to subtly and so poetically write his characters into this massive continental global history you know, that spanned the Caribbean and went back to Europe. I mean, all the stories, just you could feel the ties going outward, and I thought, this is what I want. I want to put everybody back into history and make sense of us. So that's a long answer to it. Yes? So I have uh, two questions about the new book, which to my knowledge are not related questions, but maybe they will turn out to be. Okay. Um, one is about the title and yes. what does it refer to, whose arms are open, whose hands are empty. And the second is about what happens if you put, and I assume this has been done, chimpanzees and bonobos together. All right, I'm going to answer the second one first because it's an easy one. Okay. Uh, they, depends if it's a male or a female, you know. If you put female chimpanzee and female bonobo together, they get along great. Female chimpanzee and a male bonobo together, they get along pretty well. Um, they usually just end up breeding. 
you know, or, or you know, it's, it just depends, because, you know, if there's just two of them, it depends on the social structure, you yeah. know. They're very much, their behavior has a lot to do with, there's so many variations, and so many, so many different things could happen. I, I think the best answer to that would be, it depends on the bonobo and depends on the chimpanzee. Okay. You know, they're, they're very much like we are. Yeah. You know, if you put two humans in a room together, it depends on the humans. So, <laughs> so it depends a lot on the two of them. But um, if they're of opposite sex and they find each other appealing enough, you know, pretty pretty obvious where that's going to go. But um, the title is inspired uh, by a poem from W. S. Merwin, which is it's a line in it, which he's, where he says, "I take with me the emptiness of my hands. What you do not find, uh, what you do not have, you find everywhere." And um, and the reason I chose that title was because I was seeing conservation work with almost no resources. Mm-hmm. I was seeing people able to, you know, they, 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 in a sense they were open to each other. By being open to each other, by learning from each other, by working together, they were able to accomplish a great deal even though they had very little mm-hmm. by way of material resources. And so that was sort of just a play on that. Okay. No problem. Any other questions? There's one over there, actually. Yes. Yeah. I have a question about your memoir and why it took you 17 17- and I guess, because uh, I, I, I have some projects that have you know, been sitting around for several decades. But it would, I was going to ask you, is it a writer's block issue? that something blocked you from completing it? Or something disrupted your time so that you couldn't get around to it? Or did you have to get to a certain place in your life, the age you are now, with that maturity of reflection to be able to wrap your head around it? Well, um, I don't suffer from writer's block, generally. Um, I've, you know, I... I I have ways that I would, that's a you know I can address why I think people have writer's block, but I would say that I just wasn't very smart in the beginning, and I had to learn. I had a lot to learn. I was 20 when I started, and so I, I you know from 20 to to 37 a lot changes, um, so I had to learn a lot. But I think what also happened was that I started writing the book right after my father died, and the lens the filled you know, the lens for the book was his death, and that's a really um, it's not an accurate lens, right? You, 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 you begin to try to tell a story from the point of view of someone's di- dying, and it distorts the story dramatically. And so I think, actually, I, was in, I, I, wrote, I rewrote the final draft. Like one of the major drafts was in, in Afghanistan. I was actually working on a project in Kabul, standing on a rooftop, trying to I had a grant to write about some stuff in Kabul, and I was thinking, wow, this is a really depressing place. I mean, people are, it's, it's, rough, you know, it's the dead of winter, the war is not going well, we've poured billions of dollars into the economy and the streets downtown are unpaved, they are massive mud puddles, you know, everything's falling apart. Um, and I was thinking, how do you write about this? How do you write about this level of, you can just see the, the failures of history and the human greed and everything looming over this culture. And then I was sitting there looking at this from this rooftop at people and I thought, you know what? They're opening stores, they're getting married, they're buying their first car, they're having a great time. They're, there's human resilience and hope everywhere you look, under, you know, shadowed by all the potentially bad things that could happen. And I suddenly thought back to, um, and I was writing the, I was, I had someone had asked me to write a piece in French, La, La Langue de Mon Père, and, um, which I was, the piece he read from, I was writing at that time. And I, so it was in my mind, and I suddenly thought, I misremembered everything. I thought, you know what? I loved my childhood. That was fun. 
You know, I loved being parked on the train tracks. I, you know, I really enjoyed all this stuff. And I began to think back to it, and I realized that just looking at that, at that spirit of resilience and hope that I saw in everybody throughout Kabul, I thought that's what we had, and I forgot about that because the death shattered it. So I went back and tried to just write from that place of being a child and what it was like and how much I loved that, 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 that world. So that, that, I think it took time for that. I also think it took time for me to realize what's not normal, if that makes sense. To tell a story, you have to kind of know what your culture sees as normal. <clears throat> so for me, it was very normal to be parked on train tracks and to, you know, someone once hired me to babysit some kids when I was a teenager and I put them on the hood of my car and drove them around a the field. Um, <laughs> I thought, this is what you do. This is, this is how I was raised. I was raised in a very insane environment. So I had to have enough distance from that to see that it wasn't actually normal and to know how to present that to people. And certain books only really work in certain cultures. You know, I was in the Congo and I was getting emails. I, I was, it was, we went to an, an email outpost in the middle of the rainforest and I get some emails and my publisher wanted me to check some revisions. And the Congolese I was working with said, what's your book about? And I said, oh, my father who's a criminal. And they went, so? <laughs> <laughs> was, was he a politician? Was he a president? <laughs> you, know? you know, so it's a, people who lived 30 years under a president who said it's okay to steal a little, just don't take too much, but steal to survive. You know, so for them, they're just, yeah, what's the big deal? So I had to have enough distance to know how to tell the story of my culture. That's probably one way to say it, or to North American culture. Does that answer the question more? But I also had to learn how to write. Proper, well, well enough, you know. It's, I, it takes a while to get, writing's a long, uh, an art form that takes a lot of time to get good at. Yes. Can I follow up on, on that? Um, because you, you talked just now about, about books and yeah. about how uh, books gave, gave you a way to be in the world and to, to kind of figure out who you were. And yeah. But in the, um, in the memoir, you also um, talk a lot, particularly towards the end, about um, uh, provoking your father to tell stories. Yeah. Um, and the way in which um, you're that um, you're sort of, it's almost as if it's almost like a sh kind of reverse share is a yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can keep them telling stories, you'll keep them alive. Yes. Um, and that also, um, there's a way in which um, that's also, um, you know, not only are you learning about him, but you are also kind of um, keeping them alive literally yeah. at the end, it seems like. Um, and constituting a kind of relationship. So I, I was interested, I thought what was interesting was that kind of juxtaposition or that um, uh, fluidity between books I mean, the, the French Canadians have a very strong oral tradition, and um, they, they have a lot of wordplay, you know, so the, the, a storyteller in Quebec uh, will be called um, an agrémenteur, you know, like agré to, you know, add, aggregate, to, and menteur, liar. You know, so it's, you add and you lie. That's what those will call a storyteller. And so he was very much in that tradition. There was a lot of, you know, he grew up in a world where, you know, the Index Librorum Prohibitorum was enforced in Quebec until the 1960s. There was a list of prohibited books. You could not write a book against the church. It would not be sold. Um, you would get shut down. And so storytelling was the mode of communication if you wanted, you know, to, to resist. If you wanted to, I wrote an essay that's online called Disobedient Ancestors about how the Catholic Church essentially turned my father into a bank robber because if you wanted to resist, 
you know, there were all these modes of resistance. One of them was storytelling and crime, but the church came on the back of people who were essentially there to exploit the continent. Like it, it came on the back of the toughest, most ruthless French people there were who were coming to North America, fighting with the Native Americans, breeding with the Native Americans, and then defying French law and going and living with the Native Americans and running fur when it was banned. So you had the church basically was following these outposts and building, you know, converting a criminal people to Catholicism. And storytelling kind of became the mode of, you know, it became their literature, their communication, their resistance, all these things. And so he wasn't probably that aware of what that meant, but that was his way of communicating with me when I was a child. And when I saw him when I was 15, I wanted a bank robber father. I was determined I was going to get a bank robber father. And I found he wasn't a bank robber anymore. And I was really disappointed. Mm -hmm. And so he saw my disappointment and I didn't respect him. And the only way we had to get close was stories. So he would tell me these stories about his past and then I would see the father I wanted to see. And as long as he didn't try to keep me from what I wanted to do, I was okay with that. Um, but, at the, but as he got older I, and I wanted to be a writer, I realized that the stories he'd been hiding all along were the ones that would explain him. And so I wanted the tools. I knew he was going to die. I wanted the tools to explain who he was because I knew I couldn't write those great epic novels that I loved if he didn't give me his past. And so I wanted his past. And I also knew, and what was interesting was he, had, you know, he was of a male culture that you did not show weakness. You know, I remember one time my brother cut his finger and it got infected. And my father and I were like, what? He has an infection? You know, you, you weren't supposed to get infected. You know? <laughs> you know, it wasn't supposed to happen. You weren't supposed to show weakness. You weren't even supposed to worry about it. You supposed to ignore it. Everything would be fine. And, and so we couldn't communicate anything deeply emotional to each other, so we had to use stories. So he would tell me stories. You know, when he wanted me to respect him and be afraid of him, he would tell me stories, a story about breaking someone's leg in prison. But then later, at the end of his life, when he wanted me to have pity on him, he would tell the same story and make himself the victim in a way. He'd be like, I was in this prison, and it's like how brutal it was, and we had no choice, and I had to break this guy's leg. You know, he could turn it around. He, but he was able to convey the emotion to me. And so the emotion was always, there was a link, there was a, a bond being established, and we both got the bond, but we couldn't go beyond it. To, to say what we really felt. So that was our relationship. And so it served so many purposes. I mean, storytelling was this, this very dynamic web in a way that, that, that allowed us a connection and allowed me to write the stuff I wanted to write and, and to find the family. I, I went and met his family afterwards. You know, so that was, if he hadn't bro you know, given in and told me his, my, my grandmother's name and his real name, I would never have been able to figure out where he came from. It would be the other thing that seems to that keeps coming through in the way you tell the story is that it's him always saying you're just, just announcing that you're just, you're just right. Like, yeah. Um, so which which you take in the early parts of the right. memoir to be you're this outlaw you're, or you don't want anything to do with culture right. with, um, with reading you want to live this wildlife but in fact in the end the way you are just like you this ability to tell these stories. Right. Yes. It's, it's a it's it's you know really. Um, when I said there, were, you know, there are two influences in the book. One influence in the book. One was Faulkner, and the other one was very much Tolstoy. And what I admired about Tolstoy was his ability to transform characters very slowly over time. You know, he doesn't have. He, he he's not working with the epiphany. He's not making a jump. He's building one detail at a time until the character has so much weight that the character becomes someone else. And 
what I wanted to do with my father was show this child and this when the, with the book was show my, my child and a father and I admired my father so much but it's all these details get added and little by little it's, he's the one admiring me and see he needs me for his identity more and more he needs me to have a sense of his future where it was the opposite before and yet I still need him to and, and so that, there's that relationship where he wants me to be like him and in a weird way he's almost trying to make me into him through his stories He's trying to give me these stories to plant the seeds so I become like him. And yet I'm, I'm trying to transform who he is. And, and so the, the power dynamic between us shifts repeatedly through the book until at the end it's almost an, a complete reversal of the child and the, the father. Yeah. Is that fully? Any other questions? You guys have been here for at least two hours now, I think. So no, I have no idea what time it is. Me neither. <laughs> I have one more question, actually. What are you working on now? Um, I'm going back to Afghanistan in three weeks, I think. What's today's date? Yes, three weeks. And I'm doing a few different projects in Afghanistan. I have a novel that's under contract that I've been working on that takes place half in Kabul and half in the United States that is very much about how the civilian surge and all the American money allowed Americans to kind of almost create this feudal society in Kabul where mm -hmm. Americans lived in palaces and had servants and you know basically you know when you look at films about the British the Raj or something like that and you see how the British lived it looks very similar and very frightening and so it's a, kind of about the um, the way Americans have this messianic vision they have to change the world and unless they can go out and go to some culture and feel as if they've fulfilled that messianic rite of passage their narrative isn't complete Yet they're playing out these very foreign narratives in a landscape where it doesn't belong. So the Afghans are kind of always going, "What the fuck?" You know, it's basically what they're what they're saying in 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 Dari all the time is, "What are these crazy people doing?" And the Americans have to play out their stories, you know. And so it's kind of about that dynamic. And then um, I'm doing I'm, I have a bunch of pieces. I'm doing a bunch of articles for foreign policy right now. So I have I actually have a piece coming out in the next issue on child sorcerers in the Congo. So children across Africa are being accused of sorcery, and it's really an interesting dynamic as to why. And there's a spread of Pentecostal churches. So I just finished that project. But I'm, the next project I'm doing with them is um, uh, female Afghan athletes. And um, so I'm doing a book of, uh, I'm a photographer as well, so I do a book of photography and essays on female Afghan athletes and their stories and how they see themselves in the culture um, what they're experiencing. So that's one of the other projects. That'll, be, that'll come out in a bunch of um, essays and then be in a book. So I, I really liked your post, the Twitter post about the the, the motorcycle um, oh, gangs in, in Morocco. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good post. Those are great, those, those are great photos, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, a, there's a bunch of, there's a women's motorcycle gang in Morocco and I don't know how contrived that is or not, but it was, they're great photos, these women in, in, in um, you know, their veils are like Nike veils and yeah, like polka you know. dots. And yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, really it's great. a great project. Yeah, um, I think the photographer actually is is uh, a lot of his projects are very quirky. Yeah, yeah. I was I was trying to think how much the photographer was making up, or if that gang of motorcycle women was actually there. How, how much setup was? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think up. I think it's probably a lot of it was set up. Yeah. yeah. But there are there's a there are women boxers. There's a women's boxing club in Kabul. There's taekwondo. There's uh, skateboarding. There's skiing. There's bicycling. Mountain biking. They're doing all these sports, and the Taliban didn't 
really cracked down on sports. The one time they ever, bodybuilding is huge in Afghanistan, and the one time they ever cracked down on it was they arrested one bodybuilder because they said people's admir admiration of him um, equated to idolatry. And so they put him in prison for inspiring idolatry, amongst others, because of with his huge muscles. But um, but the Taliban was actually pretty relatively open-minded about sports, and so it's that's been a place of expression in Afghanistan, and women have been really trying to explore that. And, and there's a lot of interest in what you know. Women have a lot of interest to explore that, and the culture is really debating what role it should have. And so it's sort of the books about that cultural debate. You know, because families, have an entire, if one woman does this, the entire family and all of her cousins and uncles, they all have a say. You know, the father says, yes, you can be a mountain biker. 20 uncles show up and they all sit down and discuss it. You know? So it's, it's about how the entire culture is debating that and what that's like. And, and, you know, the roles that women have in this society. So I could go on forever, but. Thank you. That's, yeah. Okay. Thank you for coming tonight. Yeah, thank you very much.